We're actually continuing in our series through the life of Joseph. And uh, last week we learned about his rise to power in Egypt and how by the sovereign grace of God, he went from being a prisoner in jail to becoming the prime minister, uh, essentially, in Egypt, to becoming the, the, the second most powerful person in that entire empire. And he did this by interpreting Pharaoh's dreams that Egypt would have seven years of, of harvest and plenty followed by seven years of famine, famine so devastating that they would forget. It would be as if they'd never even had those good years. Uh, In Genesis 42, uh, the first year of this famine has set in. And so last week we talked about his rise to power and he was just appointed. Seven years have passed and the famine has now set in. There's already a shortage of food, not only in Egypt, but in the surrounding uh, areas as well, especially in the land of Canaan. Um, If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 42. Uh, We're going to read the first 11 verses together. Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 11. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles or your apps, it's going to go up on the screen, and we'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt... He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Amen. In today's sermon, we're actually going to go from Genesis chapter 42 all the way through Genesis chapter 45. I've never tried to traverse four chapters, especially not of of Genesis, where the narratives are so long. Uh, But I just wanted to read those first 11 verses to kind of give us a bearing, to give us, yeah, an idea of of what's going on in this narrative, in this story. So 22 years have passed since Joseph's brothers, his 10 older brothers, plotted against him when they sold him into slavery. And they sold him for 20 pieces of silver, 20 pieces of silver into Egyptian slavery. And here in Genesis chapter 42, we have their first encounter since that time. 22 years, that's, that's a lifetime for all of our college students, right? That's, that's crazy to think about that. And during these 22 years, Joseph experienced life as a slave. He was falsely accused of a crime he did not commit. He was tempted by the wife of his master. He was imprisoned for two years. He was abandoned by people that he helped. He felt like he was forgotten, rotting away in prison. But now by the providence, by the grace and the sovereignty of God, Joseph has risen to power, 
to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Now, before we get into the text, I just want to ask you to consider, consider um, how you might have responded if you were betrayed, if you were treated like Joseph was by his brothers. Odds are we would have held a serious, serious grudge. I mean, you and I, we have a hard time forgiving people who cut us off on the freeway, right? We, we hold grudges against people who um, never pay us back, right? Who never pay enough when you're splitting meals and they're like, oh, that guy never pays enough for tax and tip, right? Meals $9.95, they only paid $10. I hate eating with that person, right? We hold our own little small grudges. We especially hold grudges when, when somebody may even just offer the smallest criticism. If somebody, one of your coworkers doesn't like how you do your job, right? Or one of your friends comments and, oh, you know, like your house was a certain way and, and they thought something was tacky. I mean, that's like, man, you're never gonna invite them over again, right? We, we are so sensitive and we all hold these personal grudges. The Bible tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs, right? But when it comes to the little wounds that we experience in life, we act like, you know, CPA, like certified public accountants. We keep tabs. We keep very acute records of people who have hurt us, people who have let us down, people who have wounded us. And so if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would lack the ability, the character, the capacity to forgive um, if we were harmed in such a way that that Joseph's brothers harmed him. If somebody sold us into slavery, if somebody left us for dead, we would have a hard time looking them in the eye, loving them, and forgiving them. But in our chapters today, we're going to see an amazing story of testing, of reconciliation, of forgiveness. Not the kind that is fake or coerced, like when you fight with your siblings and your parents make you hug, hug it out, right? That is so fake and that's so coerced. It's just because you don't want to get spanked again or you don't want to be grounded, right? And so you, you, you fake that. But today we're going to see real forgiveness and real reconciliation, the kind that is truly centered on God, the kind that reaches us in our deepest parts of, of our hearts and our souls. We're going to see a forgiveness that is liberating, a forgiveness that truly heals. So let's dive into our text today. The first section of our message is titled The Three Tests. Right? So the title of the sermon is Testing and Reconciliation. And throughout this narrative, Joseph is going to test his brothers with three different tests. The famine that Joseph foretold, it's now hit Egypt, all the surrounding nations, even Canaan, the land of milk and honey. Joseph's family was living in Canaan at the time, without him, obviously. And they're in danger of starvation. So they've come to Egypt to buy grain, but there's a problem. Anyone who wants to buy grain must go through Joseph, right? Because Joseph is the governor of all the land, right? And so his brothers come before him, and they arrive, and they kneel. And they kneel in such a desperate form with such humility and fear that they put their heads to the ground. It is like New Year's for Koreans, right? When you, when you kneel before your grandparents, your, your face touches the ground, and you're hoping that you'll get triple digits, right? Not just double digits, triple digits for New Year's from your parents. They kneel to the ground. They don't recognize that it's their brother, the brother that they sold into slavery 22 years ago. But Joseph recognizes them. Joseph didn't forget them. He recognizes them. And this amazingly, this one scene 
amazingly fulfills the prophecy, the dream that God brought to him in Genesis chapter 37. See, Joseph dreamed that his brothers would one day bow before him. He even dreamed that one day his, his, his mother and his father and all his brothers together would be bowing down before him. And the Bible tells us that Joseph remembered his dream. And I believe he didn't just remember his dream, he remembered what happened after. He remembered what happened when he told his brothers and his family about his dream, that one day you guys are gonna bow before me. And now Joseph's birth order was number 11 out of 12. So he just told his 10 older brothers that you guys are gonna bow down before me one day. And the Bible actually tells us in Genesis chapter 37, verse five, what happened. It tells us that when Joseph told them his dream, they hated him even more. They hated him even more. And so this was like a crazy flashback for Joseph. He remembers the dream. He sees them actually bowing before him and he remembers how much his brothers hated him. How much spite, how much jealousy, how much bitterness they had towards him. And then Joseph, he goes into his first test. He speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies, but they plead their case saying, no, 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 we're just 10 brothers who have been sent by our father. Our youngest brother, Benjamin, he's back at home. And then their other brother, they don't mention his name, but they say he's no more. And this sets up the first test that Joseph has for them. And in verse 15, we see his first test. And I just, tied, I just gave the synthetic names. The first test, I called it the test of brotherly affection. This is the first test. In verse 15, this is what Joseph tells his brothers. By this, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go down or you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He says, if you want this grain, Right? If you want to prove to me that you're not spies, you have to bring your youngest brother here. And here Joseph, he wanted to see. He wanted to see whether their attitude towards him and his brother Benjamin had changed over the years. Because here's the thing. Here's, the, here's what explains all of the dysfunction between Joseph and his 12 brothers, or his 11 brothers. Uh, they were truly like brothers from another mother. Right? Um, they were all, most of them were half-brothers. Uh, and so if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob had two wives. He had Rachel and Leah. Leah was his first wife, but Rachel was the one that Jacob truly loved. Okay? Um, but they were married together. Rachel was barren. And so Jacob had uh, children first with, with Leah. And that, I mean, Leah thought, man, now Joseph will, Jacob will love me because I've borne him sons. Right? And Rachel got really depressed, really sad. And so Rachel gave Jacob her, her maidservant. says, I am barren, but have children with my servant, so that it will kind of be proxy. And so her name was uh, Bilhah. Right? And so some of Jacob's sons were from Bilhah. And then Leah said, you know what? I have a maidservant as well. Her name is Zilpah. Why don't you have children with, him, or with her as well? And so some of Jacob's sons were from Zilpah, That's, it's getting crazy, isn't it? So there's Leah's sons, right? There's Bilhah's sons, there's Zilpah's sons. And finally at the end, after 10 sons have been born through this crazy dysfunction, Rachel's womb is opened and Rachel bears Joseph and Rachel bears Benjamin. And Jacob loved Rachel. And because he loved her, he favored their children. And the other 10 brothers hated it. They were all half brothers but they were jealous, envious, bitter half-brothers, okay? 
So that's kind of like the backstory there. And so here's the thing. Um, Jacob wanted to see, do you still hate the sons of Rachel? Do my 10 older brothers still hate the sons of Rachel because they hated me? I want to see whether they hate Benjamin. And the brothers in this kind of test, in this distress, this is how they responded. This is how they responded in verses 22 or 21 to 24. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And they're talking about Joseph. They're like, oh my gosh, this is all coming back when we sold our brother into slavery. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, not to sin against Joseph, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. Right, so Joseph you know, understood what they were saying. They were all speaking Hebrew amongst one another. Um, and when he heard this, he wept. And here we see that his older brothers were haunted by their sins. That they sensed that one day that they would pay for their sins. I'm sure that we would have that same kind of guilt. If we had done to one of our brothers, if we had done to somebody else something as grave and devastating as selling them into slavery, we would always be looking over our shoulder, wondering when we would be punished for that kind of trespass. They didn't know Joseph could understand them, but it's clear to Joseph that they knew that they had sinned against him. Joseph has them held in prison for three days and then sends nine of them back, nine of them back with food, and they tried to pay for it, but Joseph graciously says, you know what, put the money back in their bags and send them on their way. But Joseph keeps one brother, Simeon, hostage. He says, you have to bring Benjamin here. You have to bring him here. That's the test. And I'm going to keep Simeon hostage until you return with Benjamin. Then the brothers make it home and they tell Jacob everything that has happened. And Jacob is wrecked. He is distraught. He's like, no, no, no. If I lose Benjamin, I'm going to die, right? My, my, my heart, my life, everything is just going to just, just descend into death. And so you know what Jacob actually does? He refuses to send Benjamin back. Even if it means that Simeon remains a prisoner. He says, even if it means I get, yeah, I, we're not going to rescue Simeon. We're going to keep Benjamin here. And so an entire year goes by, and they survive off of the grain that they bought in Egypt. And that, that still shows that there's so much favoritism. That's how much more Jacob loved Joseph and Benjamin, that he would allow Simeon just to rot in an Egyptian jail. He's like, there's no hope. We're not helping that guy, right? Benjamin is more precious. Fathers, don't raise your sons that way. A year later, the famine continues, right? They're only in year one of the famine. And in chapter 43, they have to return. They have to go back because they understand that, that there's no more food left. And Judah actually convinces his father. He says, we have to take Benjamin and go back to Egypt. And his father's like, no, no, no. He's like, yes, yes, yes. If you, if you refuse this, it's not just Benjamin's life whose life is at risk. You're going to lose three generations of our family. Uh, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, their children, and then their children's children. We will all die if you refuse to surrender your son, Benjamin. Right. 
Judah actually personally promises to bring Benjamin back. And so all the remaining brothers, they set out again in Genesis chapter 43. He says, okay, we're going to go. All 11, or no, no, all 10 remaining brothers with Benjamin, they go back to Egypt to buy grain and save their family. Jacob prays for them, and he, he, he even loads them up with gifts in hopes to appease the anger of this governor of Egypt, this prime minister. When all the brothers arrive in Egypt, Joseph has a feast prepared for them. When he sees Benjamin, he's filled with affection and he weeps again in private. This is the second time that Joseph has cried and wept over his brothers. Joseph truly is both a thinker as he's planning these tests and he's a feeler. So his Myers-Briggs is going both ways. And then he amazes his brothers by seating them according to their birth order. And he gives them then their second test. This is the test of brotherly uh, contentment. The first was affection, right? Do they they have love or hatred towards the sons of Rachel? The second is brotherly contentment. This kind of feels like Willy Wonka, right? In the chocolate factory. We're going to see who's going to make it at the end. Well, this is what we see in Genesis 43, verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. You see, in this test, Joseph wanted to see whether they still harbor jealousy and envy towards the son of Rachel, who received special treatment. You see, when Jacob favored Joseph, Jacob gave him this beautiful coat, right? This beautiful robe. And he didn't give that kind of robe to any of his brothers. And every time Joseph wore that robe, his brothers were reminded that dad loves this guy more than any of us, right? Every time his brothers saw special treatment, partiality towards Joseph, his brothers were filled with envy, anger, and hatred. But here we see during this test that when Benjamin, the youngest, gets five times the portion of his older brothers, His brothers are not envious. They're not angry. They're not jealous anymore. They eat, they drink, and they're merry. And so Joseph saw that they learned. That they had learned and they had become men who can love their brother without envy, who can love their brother without partiality. This leads to the third and most challenging test, the test that we will call the test of the silver cup or the test of brotherly sacrifice. You see, Joseph commands his servant to send all the brothers back, and he loads them up with tons of food and tons of gifts. He loads them up with their own money as well, and he says, go, go your way. But he tells his servant to do like kind of like one little sneaky thing. He says, hide my silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Hide my silver cup in Benjamin's bag. So he does it. The next day after the feast, all the brothers, all the brothers together, they think they're in the clear, like, we are good. We brought Benjamin back. Dad's going to be so happy with all of us. He's not going to die out of depression. Um, This is going to work out. Right when they got outside the city, Joseph's servant catches up to them, and he accuses them of stealing the governor's cup, the prime minister's silver cup, and they do their best to deny it, right? They deny. They said, why would we ever repay evil with good? You guys have been so gracious to us. We have no need for a silver cup, right? Why? That makes no sense. This, that was not planned at all. 
And finally, they agree. They said, fine. Uh, you know, none of, they all denied it, but they said, go ahead and search us. Go ahead and search us. And this is what Joseph's servant says, and this is the exchange in Genesis chapter 43, verse 10. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So they said, hey, if any of us stole it, let him die, right? But the servant actually watered it down. He said, hey, whoever's caught with the cup, they have to come back and be a servant in Egypt. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack, his bag, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's bag. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Imagine how intense that scene must have been. All 11 brothers line up. They put their bags down. They're all denying it, but they know that if one of the brothers is found with the cup, that he has to go back to Egypt. And they go from the oldest all the way down to the youngest. And I'm sure as, as the search was making its way down to Benjamin, every single one of them was like, don't let it be Benjamin. Don't let it be Benjamin. Don't let it be him. And lo and behold, the 11th bag was open and the cup was found in Benjamin's back. At this point, all the brothers could have returned home to Canaan with their money, with their treasures, with their food. They could have said, sorry, Benjamin, you know, like just luck of the draw, right? Sucks to be you. They could have abandoned Benjamin to Egyptian slavery just as they had abandoned Joseph. But instead, what do we see in the scriptures? They all returned with Benjamin to Egypt. They all returned to Joseph. And Judah, the fourth brother who had promised his, his father that he would bring Benjamin back, Judah spoke up. And this is actually the longest speech in all of Genesis, right? This is the longest like monologue in all of Genesis. And here Judah pleads for Joseph to have mercy upon them. He pleads to allow Joseph, Benjamin to be freed. He says, Benjamin is so precious to our father. Our father, our family will be devastated if you take him. And this is Judah's words as he concludes this powerful, desperate speech. Genesis chapter 44, verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Church, do you see how Judah and these brothers have changed? When Joseph was sold into slavery, only Jacob, his father, tore his robes, okay? When Jacob heard that his, his brother had died because they, they staged his death, they killed the goat, they, they put the blood all over that robe that, that Jacob had given his beloved son, and they said, your, your son was mauled by wild beasts. And Jacob tore his robes. What happened in this scene? The moment that they saw that Benjamin's bag had the cup, you know what all the other 10 brothers did? Tore their robe, like Hulk Hogan. Just, just in, 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 in angst and in pain because they had such love for their younger brother, Benjamin. When Joseph became a slave, 
all of his brothers abandoned him. But when Benjamin was about to become a slave, all of his brothers followed him. They remained with him. And here Judah, out of great brotherly love and sacrifice, he even offers himself as a slave in exchange for his brother. He says, please let the boy go. I will be your servant. I will be your slave. And church, this is the picture of the gospel, is it not? It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. While we were enslaved to sin, while we were enslaved to this world, while we were blind and lost and dead, Jesus Christ offered himself up in our place to die on that cross so that you and I can return home to our Father. Church, this is the love that Christ has for you. He did not want you to die as a slave. He did not want you to live and remain a slave or a servant in the house of another unworthy master. He died and took your place so that you can return to your Father in heaven, that you can be a son or a daughter of God. That is the gospel message for us. And so I hope that you would know that where you are this day, no matter how crimson, dark, and wayward your sins might be, the whole purpose and power and mission of the cross was to ransom you for Christ to take your place. He loved you to the point of death. Let's close with our final passage from Genesis chapter 45. And here we see Joseph's response to all of this. All of the weeping, all of the pleading, all of the negotiating here we see Joseph's response, and here we see truly God-centered reconciliation. In verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, now for the third time in our narrative, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed by his presence. They just could not believe what they were seeing. They're like, they, they, they thought they saw a ghost. 22 years later, the brother that they had sold into slavery was standing before them, and they just couldn't believe it. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. Understandably, they were probably looking for the door and thinking of an exit strategy because his brother is out to get his revenge. He says, come near me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, who sold you into Egypt. No passive aggression here. Just, we're going we're to put it out there. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children 
and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Amen. Amen. Church, here we see truly God-centered reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And I believe that there's so much for us to learn from this passage. But I, I just want to highlight two things that I want to share with you here. The first is this. True reconciliation, it's not grounded in the right kind of behavior, but in the right kind of perspective, okay? Reconciliation and forgiveness, it's not grounded, it's not based on the right kind of behavior, but the right kind of perspective. You see, we might be tempted to think that Joseph only forgave his brothers because they passed each test, okay? I wanna tell you that that's wrong. That's not the way to interpret this story and this narrative. He doesn't restore them. He doesn't embrace them. He doesn't forgive them and love them because they pass the test. No, he loves them for a greater reason, right? It's true that they passed those tests. It's true that he did test his brothers and those tests did show that they had changed. Those tests did show the state of their hearts. It was a blessing to Joseph, but it wasn't the basis. In reality, we see that Joseph was able to forgive. We see that the basis of their reconciliation was not the behavior and performance of his brothers, but rather it was him understanding the sovereign purpose of God in his life. You see, Joseph came to realize that, that God had never abandoned him. Even when he was being sold into slavery, God was there. It wasn't just his brothers acting and working. And it wasn't that God was inactive and distant and far and forgetful. No, God was working. His hand was active. When he was in prison, when he was falsely accused, when he was being tempted, God was with him. God was remembering him and God was working. Look at Joseph's words. Not once does he talk about his brother's passing the tests and saying, okay, you know what? It's all good. I remember when you guys sold me into slavery, but we're good because, because you love me now and, and you've done all of these good things. I see that you've changed. That's not what Joseph says. He says, don't be angry with yourselves for what you did. Don't hate yourselves for what you did. Don't, don't be drowning in your own guilt and shame because of what you did to me when you sold me into slavery because it was God who was working. It's God who sent me into slavery. It's God who sent me to Potiphar's house. It's God who sent me to prison and it's God who sent me here to Egypt so that I can preserve life. Life for our family and life for many others. Don't hate yourself for what you did because God sent me here for a greater kingdom purpose. Joseph came to understand God's greater purpose for his suffering. And when he realized this, he was able to truly forgive. He saw the hand of God in his life. And I want to tell you, that's so important for each and every one of us who are going through difficult times, who have been hurt, who have been betrayed, who are suffering, who are victims at the hands of the abuse of other people and other people's bad decisions. You see, too many of us are enslaved to our suffering. Too many of us are enslaved to our pain. And as victims, we sit here waiting 
for the offenders and other people to make things right, don't we? You've been hurt and you're waiting for that person to apologize, right? You've been abused, you've been let down and you're just waiting, maybe even praying for that person to finally change and get their lives right and be the spouse that they're supposed to be or the, or the, the child or the friend or the pastor or the leader that they're supposed to be because they keep letting you down. And we sit here and we're waiting for the right things to happen. We're waiting for the right kind of apology, the right kind of justice or the right kind of behavior. But today God is offering us a better way, a better path, a path for us to truly be free, a path for us to truly um, gain a God-centered perspective on our suffering. You see, we're not just victims waiting to be appeased, right, by earthly justice and earthly circumstance. You see, God calls us to fix our eyes, not just on the offenders and the offense, but he calls us to fix our eyes on him. And what we need to do in the midst of our suffering is not, what are you gonna do to make it right? Not what needs to change to make it right. What we need to ask is, what is God's greater purpose for this suffering? Why is my loved one ill? Why are we experiencing financial hardship? Why am I almost failing out of college or grad school? Why am I experiencing this kind of depression? Whatever it might be, take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off the offender. Take your eyes off of the offense. Lift your eyes to God and say, Lord, what is your greater purpose for this? How can you help me to come to, to know you better, to trust you more, to glorify you in this service, in, uh, through this suffering? Because God always has a purpose for our suffering. I know that that, that sounds like such a Christian platitude, right? I mean, when you're in the midst of a hard time, that's pretty much the last thing you wanna hear. You don't want to hear your small group leader or your friend say, oh, you know, but, but God has a purpose for your cancer, okay? Yeah, I, I don't want to just offer this, like, cheap Christian novelty card statement. But I do want to say that's a, that's a spiritual truth, okay? And so we have to look at Joseph's life as a testament to how God uses suffering for his glory and for our good. And when Joseph came, and, and, and it probably took him all 22 years to get to this point, when, but when Joseph came to understand that God had a greater plan and purpose for his suffering, then he was free to love his brothers. Then he was free to forgive them, to embrace them, and to reconcile with them. You see, the reason why we can't forgive other people is because we have no God-centeredness in our perspective. We'd hold on to our little slights, our little wounds, our little frustrations. But I do believe if we would just lift our eyes to the heavens, and if we would say, Lord, give me a greater purpose. Let me understand why you're allowing this to happen to me. God will minister to us, he will satisfy us, and he will give us the strength to be able to love in a way that, that reflects Joseph and ultimately the gospel. The second takeaway is this. When we experience true reconciliation, you can seek the good of others, okay? And this is actually a great test because you might think, I've forgiven that person. This person betrayed me. This person let me down. They hurt me. And you can tell yourself, I'm okay. I'm over it. I've forgiven them. But here's the test. You have not truly reconciled with them until you're at a place 
where you can seek and secure their good, okay? Until you are at a place, not where you're just fine with them, but to a place where you are for them, where you will serve them and provide for them and love them, that's when you know that true reconciliation has taken place. And we see this in the life of Joseph. Joseph doesn't just forgive his brothers and send him off. He could have done that, right? He even said, hey, remember me. We're all good. I'm, in a, I'm clearly in a better place. I'm in a better place and I'll fill your bags. Come back next year. We'll do it again. You know, we're family, you know, um, but go back to Canaan. God bless you. Hashtag, right? <laughs> but he doesn't. What does he do? He provides for them. He tells them, come near. Out there, there's famine in the land. Out there, you can die of starvation, but come near. There's a land called Goshen, and it's some of the best land in Egypt. I want you to live there. It's where I live. And in the same way, Christ offers this kind of provision for us. When Jesus died for us, for our sins, for our waywardness, he didn't just say, it is finished and return to heaven. You know what he did? He says, you come. Come and enter into my kingdom. Come, be a citizen, a servant in my house. Come and be grafted into my life. Receive my joy, my happiness, my provision, and my abundance. And this is what Jesus offers us. And this is why the gospel is the perfect picture, the complete picture of true reconciliation. It's not just that we are squared away. No, Jesus gives us more. And he is our provider in the same way Josh, Joseph did this for his brothers. Christ does this for us. He invites you and I to live from his hand and his provision in his kingdom. Do you believe that? That's the promise offered for us today. Jesus knows that the life that we are living in, in this world, we often will see famine and distress. He knows how difficult it is for you. He knows how dark our days are, how lonely our nights can be. And Jesus invites you to come. Come into his kingdom. Enter into his rest. Allow him to offer his provision to you. Would you receive him? Would you trust in him? Would you believe that he offers you something better than even the land, the physical land of Goshen, right? Could be anything that this earth has to offer, would you believe that Christ and his offerings are better? Let's trust in him. Let's look to him. And let's worship him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you that in the gospel we see that Jesus Christ, out of his great love for us, he took our place and he died on the cross for us. He died the death that we deserve. Lord, at this moment, I want to ask for you by the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us to that place of exchange. That we would allow you to be our substitute. That we would stop trying to save ourselves. That we would stop trying to save our families or fix our lives. That in this moment, help us to believe and to take hold of your substitutionary work 
for us and over us. God, I also thank you for the power and the truth of the gospel that doesn't simply pay for our sins and satisfy your holy wrath. No, your gospel offers us an abundant life of freedom and joy and fullness. And God, I know that there are people here this morning who feel so empty and so dry. There are even people here who call themselves Christians and yet they find church and their faith to be so unsatisfying at times. I pray, Lord, that right now that you would open up their hearts, that you'd open up their mouths, that you would feed them your good food, that you would give them your living water so they would never hunger nor thirst again. Would you fill our hearts? Would you satisfy us? And would you lead us to live out of your provision and abundance? I thank you, Lord. And I pray that as we receive such forgiveness and grace from you, that we might be able to extend forgiveness and grace to people who have hurt us, abandoned us, and let us down.